since we have a bunch of people that travel or work over the weekends or whatever, uh, we have a bunch of people that will listen uh, to the podcast during the week. And so, uh, hello to those of you not in the room but are listening in your car, in your headphones or something. Uh, we love you. Uh, and love having you part of the family. Uh, and so we're in our, our teaching series uh, called Celebrate Generosity, leading up to this momentous weekend for us as a church. And uh, and I hope you guys have been uh, honestly stirred and have been able to uh, think creatively how you can participate and engage. Uh, but even more at a, at a baseline, be... Uh, be honestly at a heart level moved by by what God is doing through us and uh, through these initiatives and organizations we partner up with. And so two weeks ago, we talked about our global initiatives, Touch Nepal, and the church planters we support in Nepal on the ground. We heard from Ryan, this epic report. We got it all recorded. So if you missed it, go back and listen to it. He did a phenomenal job bringing us up to speed on what these guys are doing on the ground in Nepal. Uh, We also heard about Zoe International, uh, the organization we partner with to rescue kids out of human trafficking and sex slavery in Thailand and in LA. And so uh, we've had a long partnership with them and seen loads of fruit uh, from the ministry they are doing. Uh, And last week we heard from Josh about the reproducing church and we got to kind of rally around the churches we're getting behind and blessing this year and Anthem Denver and also uh, Restored Church and Temecula uh, and a few others uh, that come up along the way. And we love being able to fund and be generous towards new churches that are going in both locally and around the world. Uh, And so we looked at God's heart for the church, the reproducing church, and how our generosity helps fund churches and how that's not a new thing. That's been happening for thousands of years. Uh, And we got to see that Paul was basically uh, like a Christian money launderer in the first century. So he basically like moved money around on his missionary journeys. Uh, and so those are the last two weeks, and this week is kind of that, that third arm of Celebrate Generosity, which is how we participate in what God is doing here locally. Okay, so we looked at what God's doing globally and how we can play a part, and also the reproducing church. And kind of the third part of Celebrate Generosity is what God does here in our local community. And so for us, that's downtown in Midtown Ventura. And so for Anthem Camarillo, that's the, that's the neighborhoods they're committing to. For Anthem Thousand Oaks, those are the ministries that are present in Thousand Oaks. But for us here, Anthem Ventura, we're looking at downtown and midtown and say, how can we be, be generous and not just generous, but involved in what God is doing here in the downtown and midtown community? And I'll get specific about what that is going to be at the very tail end. But what I want to do is, is take this moment uh, to kind of rally around a couple of texts that deal with something in our our lives that is few, it's far between, it seems like a pipe dream sometimes, it feels like something that you'll never have, uh, and it feels honestly like that kind of thing you keep reaching at and are never able to fully grasp, and that is margin. Margin in our life. Uh, whether you think financially, whether you think about your calendar, whether you think about the way you invest your your gifts or your abilities or whatever, uh, margin is something that seems to be lacking in our culture. It seems to be something that we would all desire and don't really get that often. And one of the things that's been shaping me as a follower of Jesus uh, for some time is the way God invites us to see the world a bit differently than we might be kind of normally adjusted to see the world. And so go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. also have it up behind me. 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of these beautiful chapters, uh, especially that back half. It's one of those beautiful chapters where Paul is writing about how we are different, how we see the world different, how our, our identity is fundamentally changed because of Christ. And in verse 16, he writes this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And it goes on to say, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And Paul talks a lot about identity here. But what Paul is getting at in these couple of verses is that as followers of Jesus and citizens of this new kingdom, we see the world differently. And we, or we should see it differently. Like when Jesus changes, maybe it's this kind of radical overnight thing where we literally, it's like putting on glasses after not being able to see properly. Or, or maybe it's this gradual over time, we start to notice the difference between the way God sees the world and the way kind of everyone else sees the world. But we do. When we look and interact with people, we're not interacting with them simply as physical beings. We believe there's something deeper, that there's a soul there. There is an, a, uh, not to be cliche, but an eternal destiny present and represented in every person. And we see them as something more than, than what they appear to be. We see them as, as someone for whom God desires relationship and community and eternity with. God loves each person and has created them so that they might come to know him and his kingdom. And what happens with, with God is over time we start to see people the same way he does. We get maybe less caught up on appearances or annoyances or people that we like or dislike and we start to see them the way God sees them. And I hope that fundamentally changes the way we respond to them as well. I hope that starts to take the lens off, off us and what we can get out of people and then it starts to be a little bit more like how God sees them, what we can do for people, how we can serve them, how can we love them and, and know them truly. So as we press into being disciples of Jesus, one of the things that changes in us is the way we see the world directly around us. And, and this is something I feel like we, it, there's no shortage of in, in our church here. I think one of the things that's been beautiful about our church from day one is we've had our sights set on downtown and midtown Ventura. And, uh, and I don't really know how that came about. I don't know if it was intentional or if we just kind of looked around the room one day in Peter and Emily's apartment, this kind of pre-launch early, early crew of people who said we want to see a new church happen. And we just said, we all kind of live within like a mile of each other. And uh, this is crazy. And uh, still to this day, most of our church lives within a mile of where we meet. And it's just wild uh, to see uh, how God is cultivating relationships and even giving us heart and passion for downtown and midtown. And I don't really know how it came about, but one of the things I have so appreciated and loved about you guys is we see downtown and midtown uh, as places we love places we want to bring value and life and culture to. We, you guys, I see you guys out and about at, at coffee shops and at breweries. Like it's, I can't be at Prospect and not see one of you. Or like Topa Topa or VCBC or something like that. Like I run into you guys constantly and I love that you guys care deeply about this area and are invested and engaged in the culture here. And one of the things that I've just, I've, I've been able to sit back and kind of smile at is you guys not only are present, but you have like a gospel care for this area. I see you guys like chatting with people in prospect and I see like Bibles cracked or spiritual conversations going on. I see you guys like overcoming the social awkwardness and being the one to include people who look isolated or lonely. And I love that about our church. 
And I love that God has cultivated this heart for downtown and midtown in our church. It's honestly been something that's been really exciting, and it's been uh, something that's made it challenging to find a facility of our own. It's kind of made it challenging because it's much more expensive. Even you guys know if you live in downtown, you can get a much bigger house in East Ventura for what you pay in downtown and midtown. Do you guys know that? You can get a second bathroom. Come on. Come on, guys. Anyway, I, this is one of the things I've loved about our church. And it's one of the things I want to spur you onto and press you into, but I want that to be a little bit of our, of our framework because part of Celebrate Generosity is understanding the culture that is directly around us and considering how we can be a blessing to them. So each year with Celebrate Generosity, we've looked for ways to impact the world with the name of Jesus globally uh, and locally through church planting. We've been able to look globally around these big issues of human trafficking and be able to play a part in that. But today I want to look at how the gospel and the call to generosity uh, can change a a community for the name of Jesus, even a small community. Um, And for us, that's downtown and midtown. And we are so fortunate to not be doing this alone. There are a couple of other epic churches that are forging gospel ground in downtown and midtown. Churches like the river here where we meet, churches like Harvest that meets just down the road. Uh, We so love and appreciate that we're able to lock arms with them, partner with them, have people who've been here longer tell us where to go, where not to go. This is incredibly helpful for us. Uh, But before we can do any of those cool things, before we can really invest in, in the city around us, something has to take place in our heart so we have space to engage in those cool things. Like it's one thing if we can all sit around here and get excited about something, we all clap about it, go yay, and then Monday hits and you're like, oh yeah, there's no way I can be a part of anything because my life is full to the max. And I think that's not a unique problem for you. Uh, It's something we all struggle with, and it's something our cultural struggles with. And just like any cultural issue, the gospel has something to say about this. And so what I want to do is I actually want to go way, way back in the story of God uh, to the people of God in the Old Testament. And so go ahead and open up to Leviticus 23 and put your thumb there. That's where we're going to camp out. But before you get there, I want to set the scene a little bit. As God created a, a way of life for his people, the the nation of Israel, he created law and order for his people. He created this way of life, a way to engage culture and other nations. And he gave insight into his character along the way. And it wasn't simply that Israel needed to do a bunch of stuff or do a bunch of things or follow a bunch of rules. It was at the heart of that Israel was supposed to represent the image of God to every other nation. And so we get things like in Exodus chapter 19, where God, speaking to Moses, says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured uh, possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter picks up on that same identity in his letter. But there's this idea that God is preserving a people from him, and at the very nature of a priest, a kingdom of priests, is to represent something other than yourself, to represent God's very nature and character. Yahweh wanted his presence to be known and experienced, and he used Israel to bring a glimpse of that into a dark and fallen world. And one of the ways God revealed himself was through this concept of gleaning. 
Now, this is an unfamiliar concept to probably a lot of us uh, because we do not live in a highly agricultural society. Rather, we do, but none of you do, right? So it's in Oxnard, Ventura, and Camarillo, but none of you guys are, are picking strawberries. We just eat them and buy them at the farmer's market, and they're delicious. But we don't really understand this concept that would have been highly understandable, uh, you know, many thousands of years ago. And the ancient Near East was a highly agricultural society. And each of the nations uh, of this culture grew their food and, and raised flocks, and that was the currency of the day. It was not only your personal livelihood, but it was the currency. If you said, oh, I want a little bit more land over here, so i got to bring three cows over to Kevin so he'll give me this land over here and we'll make a little trade. Right? Or you were measure- your wealth was measured by how many cows and donkeys and sheep you had and how, much, how many grains of uh, corn you had in your field. And, and this is how like, this is, your identity was wrapped into it, your livelihood, your legacy, your inheritance, your family values were all wrapped up in this. And so when we look and when we think of, of this idea of gleaning or when we think of fields that are written in the Old Testament, in your mind for our day, translate that to like your bank account, your house, your cars, your material possessions, kind of everything that would be uh, contributing to your net worth. That's what's happening right here. Okay, so that's our lens when we read this in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. And the Lord says this, when he's given them all these, all these ways to live in the world, he says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, think when you get your paycheck, okay? You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Chances are you've probably not spent that much time in the book of Leviticus, but this is an incredibly powerful and transformative verse here. Something worth highlighting, worth underlining, worth going back to and meditating on later because while we are not a highly agricultural society, the principle at large here is vital for us. God called on the landowners of Israel to intentionally leave the edges of their orchards or fields as free access for the poor and the sojourner. So the poor in this context could be very simply, I mean anyone who's poor, but honestly simply anyone who doesn't own land. Right? So if you didn't own land, you were poor, you were destitute, you, were, you required the generosity of others to simply live. The sojourner in this context is the foreigner who's traveling through, both someone who's just kind of on the move and someone who's a refugee from a neighboring nation who has nothing to their name. And the reason they were to create margin, to intentionally care for them, was I am the Lord your God. God gives his reasoning in his very character and nature, his nature and character that we should emulate as a kingdom of priests to a fallen world. Inherent in his reasoning is that he's the Lord. He will provide. He he knows a better way. The whole earth belongs to him, and he's crafting a better way for us to live in it. And so if he says, of everything I've given you, leave a little on the edges for the poor and the sojourner, he's saying this is the better way to live. Israel was to be known for their, their generosity of margin. Always operate your fields with the edges in mind being devoted to generosity because I am the Lord, your God. Now, before we we move on from this right here, it's important to note that margin or this idea of gleaning wasn't simply for the benefit of somebody else. It wasn't just an extraordinary act of generosity. While that's 
present, that's not all. There's a practical aspect to margin. If you were to plow 100% of your field every time you did it, there'd be no breathing room for the land. There'd be no opportunity for natural cycles of of health and death and to let things overgrow and to cut them back. And, And this is about the extent of my agricultural knowledge. But I'm told by people who do know this, my dad is like an insane gardener. And he lets parts of his plants just go for a while. Like he'll grow things. He has, he has over 100 tomato plants. This is a big deal if you grow tomatoes, I suppose. But he has, his whole backyard is a garden. He has a bunch of tomato plants. And he intentionally like saves a, a certain amount of them to not pick every year. To let the animals come take them. To let them die on the vine and, and just kind of fall off. And he does this on purpose. He like rotates the work he's putting into each one of his crop. And he does that, or so he says, for the health of these crops. Like it's not good to harvest every crop every year. You have to let them go through some natural cycles. So what we're supposed to see here, it's not just to glean for generosity's sake, but for your sake as well. You're not a machine. You cannot operate on 100% at all times. You need things like sleep and Sabbath and rest. You're made to rest. You're made to have moments where you're not doing something every second of the day. You're made to have these moments where you can sit and just like enjoy time with your kids or read or go to the beach or to sit and be bored for like a second. Our culture tells us that busyness is a sign of honor, that busyness is a sign that you must be doing something right. And the gospel has a very different way of viewing our lives and our livelihood. We can't live at 100% all the time. We'll burn out. We'll be toast in no time. Just imagine if you were to only drive your car at 10,000 RPMs all the time. You would fry that engine so fast. Imagine if you were to live with $0 in your bank account, maxing out every credit card and just barely hoping you make it to the next month. You can't do it. Is not the way we're made to live. Not only will we burn out, but we'll miss what God has for us because we're so focused on other things. I shared this quote with you guys a couple of weeks ago. It's so good. I'm going to share it again. Augustine says, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. When you live with no margin at all anywhere in your life, your hands are too full to receive what God has for you. And there are symptoms that may look familiar. So if you're, if you're thinking, okay, Bert, what does it look like to have margin or to not have margin? There are symptoms to having no margin in your life. Symptoms like numbness. Numbness to hurting people around you, to hurting family members who may need you to be emotionally available. Numbness to your kids. Numbness to your coworkers. Symptoms like living paycheck to paycheck means you financially have no margin for error. Symptoms like claiming busyness as a good thing. I was just talking to Mireille and Steve right, right out here earlier. I think it was Mireille and Steve. And, and I was just, I was saying, man, I don't, I don't want busyness to be the marker of my life. Like every time, if you ask me how I'm doing, if I'm saying, oh, I'm just so busy. Like I'm failing at life if that's the case. Like I want to be able to retort and respond with, you know what? I'm loving life right now. Things are crazy, but I had a day where we just went to the beach with our kids, and then they napped for a a weird amount of time, and so Sherry and I just got to sit around and watch HDTV. That was nice. 
Symptoms like having no days off, thinking that you have to work seven days a week. Guys, I know this is cliche, but if God didn't work seven days a week, why do we think we need to? God modeled rest and Sabbath for us. Symptoms like not being able to stop and help someone in need. Symptoms like having no space in your schedule to be inconvenienced, and when you are, you're already at max, and so now you're annoyed and frustrated. Symptoms like being easily irritable and frustrated. These are symptoms of no margin in your life. And I think one of the more damaging ones is symptoms uh, like isolation from community. So when life gets busy, you disappear. And then you feel disconnected. And then you feel anxious or depressed or sad or lonely. And then because you've isolated from community, you have no one to go to with these feelings. And that spiral goes deeper and deeper and deeper. That's why we love and are all about community here at Anthem. We want you guys to be real and present in each other's lives on a regular basis. It's no joke that Paul sa- or that the writer of Hebrews says, like, uh, don't neglect to meet together for doing good like, like others do. Like there's a real reason when it's been a month since I've seen you, I'm out of the loop on your life and I care less about you. There's less grace there. There's less relational capital there. Like these are very real sociological things and biblical things. Margin is key for the life of believer, and chances are it seems like a pipe dream at this point. A lot of you guys are young, which means you're starting families, you're starting careers. And even if you aren't young, like the the temptation to fill your life with things is so present. So how does this, what does this have to do with generosity? If you have no margin in your life, you cannot be generous. If you have no margin in your schedule, how are you ever going to be able to to lean into an opportunity to serve and bless someone else who has no way of being able to repay you? If you have no margin in your finances, how are you ever going to step up and help when someone in the family has a need or when there's a tangible need in our community that we can meet? I want to think how might this biblical concept of margin be applied to us. And there is, I just, I feel like the elephant in the room is like, it's legitimately hard to live in Southern California, right? Like everything is more expensive. Especially those of you guys who've moved here from out of state, like, you know, like suddenly like how is rent half of my paycheck every single month? That's insane. There is a very real financial reality to living in Southern California, I've been in California my entire life. Uh, I'm from the Bay Area, which is now like the most expensive place to live ever. I don't know how all my family does it. It's crazy. So I feel like I just, I need to address, there's a very real financial like burden living in Southern California. And I also need to say that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse. Maybe we can't be generous in the way we might hope, but I think there are ways we can step into it. And there are ways that have nothing to do with money that we can step into being a generous person and a generous people. There's always room for margin if we choose to have room for margin. There will never be room for margin if you never make it a priority. And the problem is we'd rather in the moment have that extra latte or that extra new shirt or that extra night out, and we're not intentional about how we think ahead. And one of the best things we can do to cultivate margin in our life is to practice saying no to things. 
C.S. Lewis, I'm just recycling all my quotes because they're so dang good and I don't want to use them only one time. C.S. Lewis says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income, our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. One of the best things we can do to cultivate margin, financially, in your time, and every other way you can think of, is to practice saying no. You don't have to say yes to every Facebook invite that comes your way. Like, you don't have to say yes to every text pressuring you to go to that thing after the thing you already said you're going to go to. You don't have to say yes to every beautiful, delicious cup of coffee at Prospect. Get the drip coffee. It's still good. We have to choose margin or it'll never, ever be there. What I love about the scriptures is it gives us a holistic view of margin. So I know a lot of us immediately will think of money because money has such a grip on us in this culture. And so we have to deal with that for sure. But we're giving stories, we're given stories like uh, Tabitha in the book of Acts who is able to find margin in other ways and to be generous in other ways. Because chances are we don't have wads of cash stockpiling in our bedroom to just like start flinging out and making it rain. Chances are we might have to be a little creative with how we approach generosity. And I love this story. And I'll, I'll be short with it, but it's a really interesting story that we might normally blow past because something miraculous happens at the end, but that's not what I want us to focus on right now. In Acts chapter 9, verse 36, Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. We're going to move right past that for right now. Uh, She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made with them while she was there. Now, the next part of the story is Peter raises her from the dead, which is crazy amazing. But that's not the point I want us to see in this story. Look at verse 39, the very end. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that she had made for them. Like, we get this little snippet of a story, and she was probably wealthy because she was able to devote her time to this. But what we have is not a story of financial generosity, but of, of generosity of time and abilities and talents. We have in this story a picture of a woman that made a profound gospel impact in her community through her faithfulness and through her generosity. And that is something that will most definitely increase in measure as we grow in our likeness of Jesus. And so what I wanted to do, and I think we've been pretty careful with this every week, is to not make this only about money. It's the first thing we think of when we think generosity. But I want us to think holistically from a life-heart posture, how we view your calendar, how how, how you view what God has gifted you with, and yes, how you view the resources that God has entrusted to you. And so as Paul writes to his young apostolic church planting apprentice about raising up disciples, he shares this little tidbit with him in the book of Titus. And so go ahead and turn to Titus 3. I know we're hopping all over the place. That's a good thing. 
We're getting a large biblical overview of what it means to be generous. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In devoting themselves to good works, one of the things that disciples will be ready for is to help in cases of urgent need. They are to be fruitful when those crisis moments arise. They are to be ready for it. Now, I, I love that Paul doesn't really explicitly talk about uh, riches or, or money like he does to Timothy. It's a little bit more of a generic intentionality here. Be ready to help in whatever crisis arrives. Devote yourself to, to good works and, in, and, in, and help in cases of urgent need. Be ready for it. What Paul's writing there is to live a life of readiness to respond when the tragedies, when the pitfalls happen, when there is need, when there's an opportunity to proclaim the gospel tangibly. Be ready for it. So we can read into this, don't be so busy that we can't respond when someone, that coworker we've been praying for, finally asks us about this whole church thing we're a part of. And you say, oh, I can't talk right now, got to go doing this thing. Paul says they need margin. They need to cultivate this practice of regular generosity. And that's what I love about this particular verse here is margin is a learned skill, not an inherent trait. You're not born with margin or not. It's something we can cultivate, grow in, and practice over time. It's like learning to play an instrument. When you pick up a guitar or a set of drumsticks or a keyboard for the first time, chances are you're going to be terrible. Like I, I lived with a roommate who was just good at everything and he could pick up everything really quickly. That's not most of us. Most of us is like if we were to pick up, if I were to pick up a guitar today, I, I do not know how to play guitar. I would be rotten. I can play E minor. That's the two fingers that you kind of do this, right? That's what I can play. But I can get better over time if I practice if I'm intentional, if I create space to hone in that craft, much like learning to play an instrument, margin is practiced over time. The people I know who are really good at it are usually old because they've spent a lot of years practicing margin. They spent a lot of years cultivating this in their life. It's a practice. It's a discipline. It's something that it's okay to fail at from time to time. It's something that's okay if you're not good at right out of the bat. Like, don't feel the pressure to be awesome at margin tomorrow. When you, like, open up your calendar and you, like, suddenly decide, I'm going to have a Sabbath, then I'm going to have an hour each day to, like, just read the Bible and pray, and then I'm going to devote my lunch hour to only, like, being missional with my non-believers, and then I'm going to make every evening an opportunity to have dinner with something. You're going to, like, fry yourself trying to create margin in your life. Just start small. Start with something and flex that muscle over time. And for many of us, we face a pace and a budget in life that doesn't give way to a lot of margin. We live life to the absolute full. And that's been what culture has been telling us to do. And to chip it away, to chip away at that is going to take little chips over time. We are not stewarding our lives as disciples when we live life to the full. Or often, we'll look at John 10.10 and misinterpret when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. That doesn't mean full calendars and no money to give away. That doesn't mean no opportunity to be intentional with those unbelieving coworkers or family members or whatever. 
What would it look like for you to choose to live differently? What are the things that can go? What are those things you can practice saying no to tomorrow? You probably have at least one. How can you budget your time, your energy, your money in a way that makes room for a generous response? We have a planned one on October 22nd. That is a planned, generous response. And we're doing everything we can do as leaders and servants of this church to make ready for that moment. So in addition to that, how can you cultivate your life to be ready for those generous moments that aren't planned? When someone comes into your community and says, I cannot pay rent this month, I need help. When that that crazy medical bill that comes in, where there's a tragedy in a community and you guys need to surround them. And like, I love that I can sit up here and from a posture of, we do this really well as a church. Like if you're in a community here at Anthem, you are taken care of. We wear that as a badge of honor. Like we're stoked about that. This is something we want to grow into in a greater way. If you look at your life as a field, how do you make it so you don't harvest to the edges? There may be times when you need to live paycheck to paycheck. It's not good, but it probably happens to a lot of us. There may be times where you won't have margin in your calendar or whatever. And so what I would suggest to you on a very pragmatic, practical note is like, what is the area in your life that's least on fire? Like, what, what's the one where there might be a small chance at margin? Start there. If you, like, are, are just eating rice and beans to get through the month, financially this month, maybe you start with time. Like, how do you sliver out a margin of time to be ready for the opportunities that God will give you? To spend with someone else in the community, to spend with someone who is not a believer, to be ready to help, to listen, to be present. And if maybe like that time is impossible for you, but you're in a spot in your career where you can write that check, do it. (laughs) Like find those areas where you can practice margin, where you can practice saying no to things so you can say yes to the things of God. We can practice having a little less balls in the air we're trying to juggle and to be present for what God is trying to put right in front of us. When it comes down to it, the gospel is transformative. It's supposed to change the way we see people, the world, our own lives, our own bank accounts, our own schedules, our own calendars. And that's something that happens over time for sure, but it's something we're to spur each other on in. And our discipleship, our life of becoming more like Jesus will involve this ever-transforming perspective of how we we live in this world. And to kind of close out this this moment here, I want to look at Matthew very briefly The book we're taking this pause from, we'll be back in in a few weeks, but Matthew 25, verse 34. I'm going to read this little talk from Jesus right here. 24, or 25, sorry, verses 34 through 40. Jesus is, is talking, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you stranger, a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And 
And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is saying that when we treat those who are in the position of the oppressed, the discouraged, the broken, that is an overflow of the condition of our heart. If we say that we love Jesus, but we don't express that love in the way that we treat uh, those in our immediate vicinity that are broken and needy and hurting, then that declaration of love to Jesus is a lie. If our stated value of being a disciple of Jesus, if that's our stated value, if that's why we're sitting in this room this evening, then our practice has to match that as well. And Paul tells us to do that, we have to be intentional about margin. Margin is not going to happen to you. You're not going to get $10,000 in your bank account mysteriously so you can be super generous with it. Like, that's not the way this works. You're not going to get a few extra hours, and your boss is not going to say, hey, take the day off today. Go, go do some awesome things for people in your community. That's not going to happen. We have to cultivate this margin in our life so that when we come across the least of these, we're ready to show them the love and kindness and compassion that Jesus has shown us. Jesus wants our heart posture to be one of generosity and readiness to those in need. And as we press in to celebrate generosity, our hope is that we would create margin in our church to see the needs in the areas around us. And that's something we do kind of as a, as a church. Uh, we've talked about this before. Not only do we make a big deal about celebrate generosity every year, but, but we tithe on your tithe. We choose to live off less so we can give away more. And so we take a tenth of everything that comes in and reinvest that into church planting, into local and global compassion and generosity. It frees us up so that when the need arises in downtown and midtown Ventura, we can say, yes, let's participate in that need. So we're modeling that as a church because we want that modeled in all of you guys as well. And as we've prayed through and prepared for Celebrate Generosity uh, and really looked at, so we got our, our global things figured out, we got our church planting things figured out, but when we looked at Ventura and say, hey, how do we want to press into the need in downtown and midtown? Uh, and as we look around the community, one of the very present needs and moments for us to be present is the homelessness problem in downtown and midtown Ventura? How do we care and love for and provide for those who are homeless? And, and this has been an incredibly tricky thing because a lot of churches have, have done great jobs. A lot of churches have done poor jobs. Uh, and a lot of people have tried to fix this problem in Ventura. And we've wanted to take the posture of a learner and, and attach ourselves to someone or something that is doing this well, that is stepping into this, this arena in a way that would honor God and actually benefit the community. And uh, that opportunity was right under our noses uh, with something called the City Center. If you guys are aware of the City Center, it's literally right there. You can drive by it on Thompson. Uh, and one of the things that when we moved in here to the river, uh, one of the things we were excited about is not only being able to have a facility we could meet in, but to uh, follow suit and partner with the river in some of the epic ways they're engaging the community here. And one of the things that we kind of looked at is how do we, how do we deal with the, the issue of homelessness? How do we step into that well? Um, because there's a lot of ways we could step into that really poorly. And, and we've looked to the example of, of Pastor Jim here and the church at the river who are really like at the spearhead of the city center and say they are doing this well. The city center is Ventura's only transitional housing center that does not take government funding. 
They're like supported off other churches, really generous people in town, and, and they offer housing to homeless with the goal of transitioning them uh, out in a year. And I think they can stay up to two years if needed, uh, but they have counseling available. They have support services critical towards this path of self-sufficiency. They have spiritual mentoring, and they have a gospel lens to how they understand this issue. And it's incredible. I got to, a few months back, go to like a kind of info slash fundraising breakfast that was right here in this room and just like heard the stories of people who have gone through there totally broken at like have hit rock bottom, did not know what else to do, and have seen these guys be present in their life to be able to give them help, to give them counseling, mentoring, for them to be discipled in Christ along the way. It was a beautiful, beautiful story. And so that's where we're setting our gaze. That's where we're setting our focus. Uh, and uh, we're working with, with Jim and, and the team right now to, to figure out how we can enter into this story really well. And so chances are this is how this is going to go right here. Because the challenge and opportunity with doing things locally is I think our tendency is to write a check and then forget about it, whether on purpose or totally involuntary. But the, the challenge and opportunity with local ministry here is we can't hide from the issue. We can't just like write that check and then not think about it for another year until next year celebrate generosity. Like there are present opportunities right in front of us to be engaged. So chances are what this is going to look like is a financial investment into the work they're doing here, but that's just going to be the front door. What's going to happen after that are opportunities for you and I to serve and to be a part of what they're doing. And they're in our backyard. It was started, it's run by people we trust, and we know there is a beautiful gospel influence there, and we know they have real results. And so our money and our time is effective. And so what's going to happen is we're going to be able to bless them generously, financially, and that is just going to be the front door for us to step into. And so over the coming months, as we understand our part better, we're going to be calling on you guys to participate in what is happening at the city center. For some of you guys that may be like physical labor, we can go fix up some rooms or help them with some add-ons they're doing. For others of you guys, it may be spiritual mentoring for them and discipling these couples or these families that are walking through the program. And for others, it might be counseling or job placement or whatever. There, There are boatloads of opportunities for us. But what we're doing is celebrate generosity. It's just opening that door for us to have our hearts attached to what they're doing. Because Jesus says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We're going to intentionally invest some of our treasure down the street so our hearts are going to be tied up in what they're doing. So we will care, we'll be involved, we'll be invested. So as disciples of Jesus, we want to grow in our readiness to serve the needs of those around us that are hungry, that are hurting, that are lost, that are broken. And that requires this intentional cultivation of margin. That is the journey we are on together as a church, and it's something I know is being dug up in in your Anthem community.